So welcome or welcome back to History for Humanity where we're going to learn all things history. But before we get started, I just wanted to say welcome. We are almost done with this little mini-series of reviewing for AP World History. The exam is coming up really soon and for some, I mean, if you're here, it's probably because you're still going to take the exam but digitally because, you know, May 10th already happened. But I hope that you're still with me and if you're here just to listen, well, I really appreciate it. But we're going to talk about the Cold War in this unit. So as World War II was closing, the Allied powers run by the big three known as the Soviet Union, U.S., and Great Britain knew that they basically had already won the war, so they set up large conferences discussing what would happen after the war. The U.S. wanted Eastern Europe to be more democratic through open elections, and the Soviet Union wanted more control. They were scared that they were going to be overpowered by Western powers, and ultimately, this led to distrust, setting the stage for what is to come in the Cold War. We see the power shift from countries like Britain and France to the U.S. and the Soviet Union, with the U.S. destined to be the world's most powerful country, since it was the country that was the least affected by the war and its ability to produce nuclear weapons. This started some rivalry between the Soviet Union since at the same time, which was the 1940s, they were the ones that would be able to compete with the United States, actually the only ones. This tension only got worse, but because of what had just happened, both countries were not set on going in a war. As the research for developing atomic weapons increased, people all around started to object, fearing that this would allow one country to become more powerful over everyone. During this time, we also see the start of colonized countries become independent, which was easier since the rulers were not fit and not under fit condition to stop it. As tension grew, there was something that the world did agree on, which was creating a council of peace to prevent conflicts from ever escalating to extremes. In 1943, the countries, which can be remembered as Bucks, B-U-C-S, Britain, U.S., China, and the Soviet Union, all decided to create the United Nations to replace the fail of the League of Nations because it missed key members and was not good with their problem solving. So the UN was formed in 1945. This did not stop all problems though. For example, in Europe, we still see a rivalry between the East and the West in which Britain's Winston Churchill described as the Iron Curtain. Now going back to the US versus the USSR, why were they so different? Well, the key points to understand are that the US is capitalist and democratic, whereas the Soviet Union was communist and authoritarian. Both countries wanted to be the most powerful and were always trying to top each other's accomplishments. The Soviet Union used satellite countries, which included countries like East Germany and Poland, to try to make them as similar to the USSR as possible by incorporating their political processes like collectivization, which did not do much to help since they were pretty much following dictatorship. Just how Western countries saw communism as a threat, the Eastern countries saw capitalism as a threat. So they influenced a lot of what was the world revolution where all workers would put an end to capitalism. The U.S. responded with the help of diplomat George Kennan in Moscow, who said that containment was a good option to stop the spread of communism. The U.S. was also trying to find ways to restore Europe back to its economic standing, which started out with financial assistance and developed into the Marshall Plan, which was the U.S. commitment to give Europe $12 billion starting June 1947 to get back on their feet through improving trade and modernizing which turned out to be pretty successful. Eastern Europe didn't join in, and they were salty about the results, so they made their own plan, the Council for Mutual Economic Assistance, 
which was a generic of the Marshall Plan and was not as successful. So the rivalry between the U.S. and the USSR only worsened with the space and armed races. In the Soviet Union, we see them launch Sputnik in 1957, which was the first satellite in space which was responded with the U.S. putting a man on the moon in 1958. In the arms race, we see that both countries come to MAD, Mutual Assured Destruction, which meant, wow, we really made so much progress that if one of us were to start our war, we were all going to die, literally everyone. I guess the only way to stop that from happening is to keep doing what we're doing, so we'd be equal and neither of us gets even more powerful. Now, there were more things going on in the world other than the Cold War. So, also like in Africa and Asia. So, we see what can be remembered as EGII or Egypt, Ghana, India, and Indonesia as the main ones who formed the non-aligned movement in 1961, where the economy would not be at the U.S. and Soviet Union's mercy, which was created after the Bandung Conference, where almost 30 countries united to put an end to colonialism and imperialism, as well as creating an alternative to the U.N. This also was not the solution to everything, since those countries sometimes leaned more towards the U.S. or the Soviet Union, and some countries planned to enact only what was supposed to increase their own self-interest. Now, because countries were scared of things escalating into a third world war, Many countries decided to do alliances and engaged in proxy wars, which is when a major power steps in to help settle a conflict but does not directly fight. This, along with other disputes, caught more traction. Some of the key conflicts after World War II were, let's start off, we're going to be in Germany right now. So Germany was pretty much divided into four parts that would be ruled by France, the US, Britain, and the Soviet Union, in which everyone but the Soviet Union would merge to make their own portion democratic. The Soviet Union was not too happy about this, and they were like, "Okay, we're gonna control for we're gonna take control of Berlin," and they did when they did the Berlin blockade, where no Western countries could move their supplies. Not wanting to start violence, the Western countries were like, "Okay, Berlin Airlift," where they sent deliveries through planes on February 1948 and May 1949, which ended the blockade. However, this did not stop all attention as the Berlin Wall was built in August 1961. The wall was made up of barbed wire fences that were created to prevent people from East Germany from traveling to the more affluent Western Germany. The Soviet Union understood that if people were to leave their communist government, then no other countries would want to turn to communism. Since many Western countries were nothing to do with communism, they formed the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO, where countries like Canada and Norway joined together and on an alliance, which was funded by the Soviet Union with the Warsaw Pact, which is made up of members like Albania and Poland, who came to be known as the Communist Bloc. Now, the Cold War influenced what we previously described as proxy wars, which were mainly started because of colonialism and the spread of communism. In Asia, the proxy wars are the Korean and Vietnam War. So, starting off with the Korean War, where the Korean Peninsula was divided. So, this basically began when North Korea was supported by the Soviets, invaded South Korea, who was supported by the U.S., in which North Korea wanted all the control, full control of the peninsula. To regain stability for South Korea, the UN sent troops from 16 countries, with the US giving its most support. North Korea only received financial support along with weapons from the Soviets, but China gave them a helping hand by sending their troops in fear that the UN would do something to them soon. But this ended up in 4 million deaths with both Koreas divided and no actual winner, so it was like pointless in a way. So we see a similar situation in the Vietnam War with communist northern Vietnam. 
The U.S. provided support to southern Vietnam with American citizens understanding that if they lost to communism, then they were not going to be as top tier. The president at the time, Lyndon B. Johnson, sent troops because he believed in the domino effect for fear that all of Southeast Asia would slowly become communist. Now, moving on to Africa, specifically Angola, who gained independence in 1975. So, if you don't remember, the Berlin Conference was where the European countries set African borders that didn't take into account the ethnic rivalries. So, when Angola got their independence, lots of the rival ethnic groups were all together, which led to civil war about who would take control of the government. So this ended up with a ceasefire in 2002, but that was not the beginning of peace since there was still a hostile environment because of separate military groups. But let's go a little bit back in time where it wasn't until the missile crisis in Cuba when the U.S. and Soviet Union was like, okay, we should stop, talk it out, avoid problems, which eventually led to the Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, where over 100 countries outlawed testing nuclear weapons, which was not signed by China or France. This was also the foundation for the anti-nuclear weapons movement, which sprung up all around the world. So by this time, communism does succeed in spreading. In China, we see how their hopes of reclaiming land led to the rejection of Western influence, which included capitalism. We also know that the nationalist and communist parties stopped fighting to join and fight Japan, but after this is over, we see the communist party win in 1949. Later, in 1958, we see China implement the Great Leap Forward, where we see peasant lands turn to communes that were controlled by the government, and if you did not like this idea, you could have been killed. So, these communes were not successful because they there just wasn't enough food, but China, they had a front, they don't want to be seen as a failure. So, they exported grain to the world to appear that they were successful. This was later stopped in 1960 and was responsible for 20 million deaths because of starvation. Later on, we see that if you did not agree with the government's policies, you would be sent to what was known as re-education camps, where you would work through physical labor and come to terms by saying that you weren't revolutionary enough. So you basically had to accept that was the only way you could leave. Moving on to Iran, during the beginning of World War II, where they thought they should side with Hitler, but Russia and Britain were not going to let that happen, so they invaded Iran. During this invasion, the British took off Iran's elected Prime Minister, Mohammad Mossadegh, I'm sorry for the pronunciations, and replaced him with the Shah, who was pretty much authoritarian. The Shah still decided to reform Iran with the White Revolution, which was called that because there was no bloodshed. The most important aspect of the White Revolution was that the Shah wanted to become more popular with the peasants, so what he did was made the government buy land from the landlords to resell to the peasants for a lower price, which allowed a lot of peasants to become first-time landowners. But this didn't end up working out because not everyone was well represented. So obviously, the citizens of Iran did not really like the Shah, which sparked the Iranian Revolution in 1979 when they overthrew the Shah. They decided to form a theocracy where religion was the supreme authority and the government made sure that laws paired with the Sharia, or Islamic law. We also see attempts in land reform in Latin America, for example in Venezuela in 2001, which did not end up as expected. So we also see in Guatemala when we see the beginning of land reform under Jacob R. Benz, which posed a threat to the United Fruit Company, which meant they were going to tell the U.S. The fruit company were like, U.S., we need you to help us overthrow this guy in 1954. But let's move on to Vietnam, when they gained independence in 1945. 
At that time, we saw that there were only a few people that owned most of the land. So communists decided to step in and say, we are going to take this land from these landowners and give it back to you guys. You guys, meaning the peasants, which helped recruit their support. And like we have seen, Northern Vietnam turns out to be communists, and when they get their power, they carry out their policies. But in South Vietnam, land reform wasn't something that came by quickly, which is why not many people wanted to be in South Vietnam. Moving forward to Ethiopia, where they were pretty independent from Italian rule, but it still had problems with colonization. So, so Ethiopia was like, we're going to bring back Haile Selassie. This turned out to be really beneficial. They made lots of their money from the coffee trade and adopted lots of Western-style political and cultural reforms. But Selassie was not that good with land reforms. So in the 1960s, the citizens of Ethiopia started to think that he was more like a symbol of U.S. imperialism. This resulted in many leaders like Mengestu Haile Mariam ordering that 60 former officials be executed, along with Selassie. He said that his government was socialist, and he got help from the Soviet Union and other communist countries, but because of famine and not really being good with dealing with his country's finances, as well as revolts, Mengestu resigned in 1991. Now ending off with India, who had gained their independence after World War II and partitioned or, you know, split into India and Pakistan in 1947. So like mentioned previously, India had already been seeing the creation of Pakistan as an option to be the home for Indians who identified as Muslims, where India would actually be Hindus. In India, Kerala, more specifically, had great success in land reform because it accomplished the law that tenants could become full landowners and created a working system with fixed hours and a minimum wage. So, we also see that after World War II, decolonization and gaining independence were starting to become more popular and a more likely reality. So, we're going to discuss different parts of the world and their journey to decolonization, starting off with what we were just talking about, India and Pakistan. We see India progress more towards their independence with the help of Mohammed Gandhi, who is known for his peaceful, peaceful protest. But there's also some questions on how India was going to incorporate their Muslim citizens. So this led to the creation of the Muslim League in 1906, when India gained independence in 1947 after the British recognized that they could no longer rule India, Pakistan did as well, which was set aside for Indian Muslims. We're also going to talk about Ghana. So Ghana was formed with the help of the UN. So I'm sorry about the mispronunciations, but after gaining independence, Ghana elected their first president, Kwame Nkrumah, in 1960, who even though he did lots of public works, among other things, he was blamed for the country's debt and corruption. Later, in 1964, he became a dictator who encouraged pan-Africanism, which was the unity of cultures and ideas throughout Africa. To keep on his word, he started the Organization of African Unity in 1963, which ended in 1966 when Nkrumah's government was overthrown by a military coup. We also are going to talk about Algeria. So Algeria was a French colony who struggled to gain independence because France considered Algeria to be an actual part of France because of the large French settler population. So to combat this resistance, the National Liberation Front, FLN, used guerrilla warfare. This led to French President Charles de Gaulle to plan how Algeria would be liberated, but things took a different turn when war broke out in Algeria, who became a socialist authoritarian government in 1962 and was responded with a civil war in 1991 when the Islamic Salvation Front won the first election round, which turned out to be canceled. So instead of the people electing their leader, the army did, who chose Abdelaziz Bouteflika. It wasn't until 2011 when the state of emergency had been lifted after 19 years. 
Now, France followed Britain's footsteps when negotiating independence with most of its colonies, including Senegal and the Ivory Coast, by 1959. Now, we're still talking about France here. Okay, so World War II made France's rule over Vietnam more tricky to handle because of the rise of communist leader Ho Chi Minh, who attempted to unite everybody under one government, all of Vietnam. France did not like the sound of that, so they tried to bring back colonialism, which was bad because it only caused the Vietnamese War for Independence, which was successful because the Vietnam became independent in 1954. Now, the peace did not last because of the Vietnam Civil War, where South Vietnam did not want to be ruled by communist Northern Vietnam. The U.S. tried to help, but by 1971, President Nixon removed U.S. troops. It wasn't until later, in the 1980s, when Vietnam and the U.S. were on good terms. Now, let's talk about Egypt. Our key focus here is Egypt's leader, Gamal Abdel Nasser, who, along with Mohammed Naguib, established the Republic of Egypt after taking out the king. Nasser became the second president and encouraged pan-Arabism, which was the unity of cultural and political ideas of Arab nations. His rule was signified with the blending of socialism and Islam. His beliefs were tested with the Suez Canal, which the Egyptians symbolized colonial exploitation. With the help of the Soviet Union and U.S., Egypt stuck to their values and drove Britain and France out of the Suez Canal. So why don't we talk about Nigeria? So the key events to remember for this time in Nigeria was the Biafra Secessionist Movement, which was for the most part a Christian tribe known as the Igbos, who felt suppressed by the House of Fulani Islamic group. The Biafra Civil War led to the end of the Biafra Movement, but Nigeria attempted to ease tensions within the country to prevent future violence. And finally, Quebec where Quebec felt very different from the rest of Canada, which sparked the Quiet Revolution in the 1960s. Quebec leaned more with their French roots rather than British Canada and wanted to become independent. They did not succeed. So we can talk about some newly independent states. So first off, like mentioned, Pakistan. After the partition of India and Pakistan, their relationships weren't exactly the best. India was the largest democratic government, with Pakistan having authoritarian leaders. So regardless of their political system, both countries still had to work with the traditional beliefs of their represented religious beliefs. We also see Cambodia, which had a similar experience with their independence with Vietnam, who struggled with the fight against communism and even gained military support from Vietnam. Things came to an end when the UN stepped in in 1991, which allowed Cambodia to become a democratic country. So something that we also have to know for this unit is conflicts in the Middle East where we're going to have to know about Palestine and what's happening. So I'm going to briefly describe what basically is going on. So Israel became the designated home for European Jews and was more widely supported after the horrors of the Holocaust became known. Now obviously Palestinians were not happy with the partition and lots of wars stemmed from it which are still going on to this day. Israel was being, is being backed up by the UN and Palestine is being backed up by other Arab countries. There have been peace attempts, but we know that none of them have been really successful. We also see the rise of the Palestinian Liberation Organization, which is fighting for Palestine's independence as a nation. So we, if you want to take a look at the news or go online, you will find lots of information regarding the topic, but that is as far as we'll get into it for this unit. So moving forward, as there was an increase in tensions worldwide, there were different takes on how to bring about change. Starting off with the good, we see the peaceful approaches mostly led by Gandhi, MLK, and Nelson Mandela. So Gandhi. 
With his work, he led India to independence through peaceful protests like boycotts and marches. Martin Luther King, influenced by Gandhi himself, is most known for his work in civil rights during the 1950s and 60s in the U.S. He was also a Baptist minister and was a key figure in the passing of the Civil Rights Act of 1965. And lastly, Nelson Mandela, who was known for his nonviolent protests in South Africa against apartheid. Now, the whole world was experiencing lots of change, many of which um, happened in 1968. So, some of the issues that people fought over were religion, like Poland and Northern Ireland, the government in Yugoslavia and Japan, equal rights, consisting of factors like education and, and the workforce, like Brazil, U.S., and France. Not only do we see change through peace, but through violence as well, like the Soviet Union, who was struggling to maintain their stability. Their satellite nations wanted to be free of them and to stop that from happening. They would invade and use violence to assert their control. But the Soviet Union weren't the only ones prone to violence, as we also see the use of terrorism increase. Some key examples are the Catholic-Protestant conflict in Northern Ireland. So Catholics were fighting as the Irish Republican Army with the Protestants being a part of the Ulster Defense Association, which resulted in around 3,500 people's deaths, since the main approach to getting things done was through violence. We also see in Peru, we see a former philosophy professor known as Miguel Guzman create the Shining Path, which was based on communist ideas and led to decades of bombings and assassinations to overthrow the government and replace it with communism. It wasn't until 2011 that the Shining Path decided to negotiate with the Peruvian government after around 37,000 deaths and recognizing that they wouldn't be able to win. The last group was Al-Qaeda, which was responsible for the 9-11 in the United States in New York City with the crashing of the Twin Towers. We see that everyone, including countries that didn't have the best relationship with the U.S. like Iran, support the U.S. during 9-11 and ended with Osama bin Laden, the person who funded Al-Qaeda, being killed in his home in 2011. It's also important to note that the U.S. had more terrorism attacks, which consisted of anti-government extremists with other targeting minority groups. Some key figures to know during this unit are Francisco Franco in Spain, who was a dictator that when people did not agree to his political views, they were sent to labor camps. So when he died, Spain took the path towards democracy. Another important person to remember is Idi Amin from Uganda, who was affiliated with Western democracies, but then as time progressed, he started getting support from the Soviet Union. After he said, I'm going to be president for life, which basically meant that he was a dictator, he made problems worth worse within his own country, like worsening ethnic tensions, negatively dealing with the economy, and denying basic human rights for Uganda citizens. His rule is said to be responsible for 500,000 deaths, most of which came from targeted ethnic groups. In response, Ugandan nationalists, with the help of Tanzania, forced him into exile. Seeing all this violence build up, you wouldn't find it shocking to see that countries would build up their militaries, thus the beginning of the military-industrial complex, which opened up a new reality that democracy could be done for. Okay, we finally made it to the last part of the unit, okay? Approaching the end of the Cold War, we can cut the distractions and get straight to it. After decades of conflict, we see that the Soviet Union and the U.S. try to work things out, especially through the detente, which was a relaxation of strained relations between these countries, or detente, sorry for the mispronunciation, but this ended up being a mutual deal because the USSR, they were no longer expanding, meaning they had less foreign trade, and they also had many liberation movements going on, so they were struggling to maintain their power. Like the Soviet Union, the U.S. is also struggling with their economy because of the Vietnam War, so what they did is 
sell some of the grain they had stored to the Soviet Union, who was suffering with a lot of famine and drought, which helped American farmers have access to a bread new market. But all good things came to an end, so when the Soviets decided to invade uh, Afghanistan in 1979, U.S. President Jimmy Carter's like, you know, we're not giving you any more grain. Luckily for Afghanistan, the Soviet Union did not win, but it did cause many civilian deaths, which could have been up to 2 million. To help out Afghanistan, the U.S. in support, which the Soviet Union did not like. The obvious reason that both countries still didn't like each other was because they both had nuclear missiles facing the other and the rest of the world. They were kind of like, okay, y'all have to settle y'all's problems because if y'all fire the missiles, we're all going to die, not just y'all. So the U.S. went to the conclusion that, okay, yeah, that's going to happen. So what should we do? Okay, the Strategic Defense Initiative, or SDI, which is going to destroy all the Soviet nuclear missiles so they won't start anything. And the Soviets are over there like, oh my god. What are we going to do? Because we don't have that type of system in place. But like we just talked about, the whole world was eavesdropping on all of this. And they were scared that there was more conflict that was going to happen. But the Soviet Union was starting to catch on. They're like, okay, we need a change. So we see in 1985, Mikhail Gorbachev started to allow free enterprise and grant more freedom. He met up with U.S. President Ronald Reagan, who both turned out to be pretty good buds. So they said in 1987, let's sign the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, or INF. The rest of the world heard this now, and they're like, okay, yay, no war, we're good. So since Gorbachev allowed for more freedom, the rest of Eastern Europe was like, okay, this, this actually feels pretty nice, you should keep doing this. So they started democratic reforms, which resulted in things like the tearing down of the Berlin Wall and the unification of East and West Germany. Gorbachev tried to bring stability and change back to the Soviet Union, but this just made him get out of the picture because everyone in relation to the Soviet Union and the satellite nations gained independence. Once these countries fully became independent and the world started to get closer, as in they were more connected than ever, which was great for some countries, but not so good for others. But, you know, the key takeaways for this unit are modernization after World War II, globalization, and decolonization. Now, that is all you need to know for Unit 8. Now, we are so close. Please come on to the next episode where we're going to talk about, finally, Unit 9, the end of the units, literally the whole curriculum. So, stay tuned.